only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And looking there, uh, in uh, starting at verse 6, you might notice in your copy of the Bible an indented section. This uh, section was likely an early hymn that most of the followers of Christ would have known. It was written um, not long after Christ ascended into heaven. And this Easter season, if you're looking for something to memorize to help you think more about the scriptures and the work of Christ, I think this is a, an excellent section for you to stretch your mind as you memorize. Let's begin by looking at this uh, hymn starting in verse 6. He says in the first part of 6, he says, though he was in the form of God, and thinking back to John chapter 1 that Pastor Hunter read about earlier, John chapter 1 kept using the word word. This meant the knowledge of God that was revealed. This was Jesus Christ, the revelation of God. And so essentially what John was saying in John chapter 1 is, in the beginning was Christ. Christ was with God and Christ was God. And that's what Paul is writing here, that though he was in the form of God. But then he gives the opposite in the second part of 6. He says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this word is better translated as seized. The Christian Standard Bible translates it as equality with God, something to be exploited. Now, for those of you who have had young children, I'm sure this scenario is played out in your home. Um, you invite some friends over who have kids as well, and all the kids are there playing in the floor with uh, many different toys, and um, your kid who's the host of the home, is over here playing with some toy, and they look across the room, and they see one of the guest kids playing with one of their favorite toys. And so inevitably, what does that kid do? They get up, and they go to the other kid, and they grab, they seize that toy, and they say, hey, that toy is mine. And yes, that toy does rightly belong to them, but they exploit that right by seizing it. Or another similar illustration, uh, we've all had the moments where we go to a public restroom and uh, the, the toilet in the bathroom is clogged with something terrible. And uh, you come out of the bathroom to get some assistance and you go to the uh, first person that you see that looks like an employee. And this person just happens to be the owner of the entire company. You say, hey, uh, sir, would you mind uh, helping me with the bathroom? There's a problem. This owner says, hey, do you know who I am? And he tells someone else to go take care of that mess. He makes full use of his rightful position. This passage tells us that Christ did not 
consider equality with God something to be seized, something to be exploited. He did not make full use of his authority. And then looking at verse 7, the first part, it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The King James Version translates this, he made himself of no reputation. This is the kid sending the guest kid away home with his favorite toy or the owner rolling up his sleeves and heading to the bathroom. And even though Christ existed for all eternity past with the radiance of the glory of God, he willingly became flesh and chose to come with no impressive form or beauty that we should desire him, and he made his home among us on this messed up earth. And even though he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power, he willingly set aside this power to experience all the struggles that we do, becoming very acquainted with grief. And even though all things were created through him and without him nothing was made, he did not come seeking honor from his creation but he willingly allowed his creation to publicly despise and reject him. And even though all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, he willingly submitted to the Father's will, which resulted in him also submitting to the godless Roman governor and the corrupt Jewish council. And even though he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, he willingly stood as silent as a sheep before his accusers, trusting himself to the one who judges justly. This is our God, who laid aside his royalty to become the most humble of human men and earned with his flesh the title of suffering servant. And now, I want to give you two examples of this purposeful suffering of Christ. The first you'll see on the screen is Christ in the wilderness during his temptations. Scriptures tell us that immediately following Christ's baptism, this event that marked the beginning of his earthly ministry, that Christ was led into the wilderness, or more likely out into the desert. And it tells us that he ate nothing for 40 days. And because he held the fullness of humanity Certainly at the end of this 40 days, he was weak and tired, and his senses were dulled. And just like with Adam and Eve, when the serpent visited them in the garden, Satan visited Christ in his weakness, and he began to whisper lies in Christ's ear. First of all, he appealed to the flesh of Christ, these physical desires that we all experience. He comes to him, he says, hey, if you're the son of God, then take this stone and turn it into a loaf of bread. Hey, hey, forget about this suffering. You deserve to have your needs met. And surely Christ could have turned the stone into a loaf of bread. He turned the water into the wine. But he chose to deny himself his physical desires, and to endure the hunger. And then next, Christ, or Satan comes to Christ and 
He appeals to his eyes, the desires for stuff that we all experience. It says that in a very instant that Satan showed Christ all the kingdoms of the world. He showed him the, the vast Roman Empire and all of its political organization and its advanced system of roads. He showed him to the West the Mayan civilizations and the pyramids and their advanced system of growing crops. He showed him out to the East the Han Dynasty and their impressive economy and their advances in technology. And Satan tells him, he says, hey, all of these kingdoms that you see, they're, they're all under my control. And I, I'll make them yours if you'll just bow before me. He says, hey, if you're the son of God, you deserve better than being alone here in the wilderness. And with just a word, Christ could have had anything that he wanted. But he chose to have nothing as opposed to serving anything than the Lord is God. And the third temptation there in the garden, Satan comes to him and he appeals to his pride, his desires to prove his power and his wealth that we all, and his worth that we all experience. He takes him and, and he goes and, and they stand on the highest point of the temple and they're looking out over all of Jerusalem. And he says, hey, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down off this temple, and surely God will send his angels to come rescue you. Hey, hey, prove who you say that you are. And Christ surely could have done that. Even though he was the Lord of heaven to earth, he had nothing to prove. He said, I will let God do my talking. And he faithfully endured these various trials. And he resisted the lies, relying on the written word of God. This is our God, who overcame all the temptations that the men of God had felt at before and earned with his flesh the title of new and better Adam. And the second example of Christ's purposeful suffering is in the garden. On the night before Christ was crucified, he takes his uh, disciples and, and they go to these public gardens of Gethsemane, and they go there to retreat and to pray. As Christ is there praying the night before he's crucified, he, he knew what was in store for him. He knew the, the physical pain that was coming. He grew up in the region occupied by Roman rule. He had seen people on the cross and he had heard the stories of the pain. And even though he knew the emotional pain that was going to be laid on him, he knew that his purpose was to bear the weight of God's wrath against our rebellion and fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. There, there's no record that Satan was there in the garden with him, but, but this moment was the climax between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And surely the lies were present. And there, being in great agony, he began sweating. And, and there's blood coming out of his pores. And he prays, God, take this cup from me. And he says, I'm not here to seek my own comfort. 
I'm not here to do what I want. He says, God, may your will be done no matter what the cost to my flesh or my pride or my pleasure. And after he gets done praying, he looks up, and there coming his way is Judas Iscariot, this guy that had been his follower for three years. And he's leading the Jewish guards his way. This was the same Judas that Christ had just shared a meal with in the upper room, only hours before this time of prayer. And Christ, knowing at that meal that Judas would betray him, he still bowed down on a knee and washed that traitor's dirty feet. And there in the garden, Judas comes and kisses him on the cheek. And he sells out his teacher for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter, being the bold one, he, he lashes out with a sword to protect his Messiah. What does Christ say? He's like, hey, Peter, put away that sword. I have the power to stop them if I want. He said, but I'm here to fulfill God's plan. This is our God, who recklessly became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and earned with his flesh the title, Man of Sorrows. Now let us look at three implications of this purposeful suffering of Christ. And the first is that Christ is our example of how to live in the flesh. This was the whole point of Paul writing Philippians chapter 2. Paul doesn't write this for the purpose of explaining the humanity of Christ. Look with this at Verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. And here he's saying, hey, I, I want you to understand what it, it means to be humble, and I'm going to give you an, an illustration of this humility. And he Starts in verse 5, he says, follow the example of Christ. And then he talks about all the things that we've discussed. He says, hey, though you deserve something great, I want you to choose humility and submission and sacrifice, just like Christ. I think, first of all, this plays out in our personal relationships. And one thing that I struggle with is I come home from a long day, I'm tired, I didn't sleep well the night before, and my spouse is needing help with some things around the house, and the kids are demanding my attention, and my flesh is wanting nothing more than to just lay on the couch and watch some sports. And Paul is telling us, hey, I want you to follow Christ's example, and not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Or I speak to you kids. Right? Your parents do something that you don't like. They offend you. They wrong you and, you. and your flesh is demanding your rights, calling you to rebel against them. But Paul is telling us, he says, hey, follow the example of Christ. Be humble and obey the commands of God to honor your parents. Now, another thing is uh, maybe you have an enemy at work or at school someone who regularly offends you, and your flesh is calling on you to find a way to bring that person down. But here Paul is saying, 
I want you to follow the example of Christ. I want you to endure the offense. I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think another way that this plays out is here in the local church. I think about the worship of the church, this time that we spend here together each week. We all come with personal preferences. As we sit and we hear songs or or we look at the decor around us or, or you hear someone preach, there's things that irritate our flesh on a weekly basis. Paul's saying, hey, I want you to follow Christ's example. I want you to lay aside your personal preferences. I want you to look to the interest of others. I think about in the community of the church, more specifically our community groups. These put us in very close relation with other people. And our flesh is calling on us to withdraw, to isolate ourselves. Paul's saying, hey, I want you to follow the example of Christ. I want you to pray for one another. I want you to be patient with one another. I want you to share meals with one another. I want you to bear one another's burdens. I think about in uh, discipleship. Yes, in the teaching aspect, but even one-on-one discipleship that takes place. Helping people grow in their faith is difficult. It's frustrating. And our flesh calls on us to just give up on that person. Paul's telling us to follow the example of Christ and to consider others more important than yourselves. And finally, I think about the mission of the church. Going out of this place and interacting with our community and the the rest of the United States and, and the rest of the world. This causes us to interact with people outside of the church that are cruel and wicked and godless and offensive. And our flesh is telling us all kinds of excuses for us to avoid the final command of our king to go to the nations. Paul is telling us to follow the example of Christ, to be obedient to God's commands despite the personal cost to us. And I'm calling on you, brothers and sisters in Christ, to follow Christ's example of service to others. The second implication of Christ's purposeful suffering is that Christ sympathizes with our struggles in the flesh. Christ sympathizes with our struggles in the flesh. I, I doubt that there's anyone in this room who has gone 40 days alone with no food. Or anyone in this room who has wrestled face to face with Satan himself. And, but we all face moments of weakness. And we hear the lies of the evil one in our ears. And we are enticed by our desires of the body. And des- enticed by the desires of our eyes. And enticed by the pride of who we are. And I call on you to remember that Christ also suffered when he was tempted, but he suffered without giving in. And we are commanded to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. And the promise is that Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, and he is sympathizing with our weakness because he's been here in his flesh. And we're told that he is praying for our protection. 
And we are told to daily approach his throne with boldness, praying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we are told that as we approach this throne, that we will find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. And I call on you, brother and sister in Christ, to be courageous in your trials, for you are not alone. Christ has overcome this world, and he has left us with his word and his spirit that we might endure to the end. And finally, in close, turn your attention to the third implication of the purposeful suffering of Christ is that Christ paid our debt with his flesh. Christ paid our debt with his flesh. Beginning back in the garden, Christ required death of a pure animal to cover over the disobedience of men. We see this alluded to in, with Adam and Eve. When, when they disobeyed God, he, he kicked them out of the garden, but he also killed an animal and he covered them in the animal's flesh. We see this principle more on display at the Jewish Passover where they were asked to sacrifice a pure lamb. And in the scriptures, we are told that Christ in his flesh has become the sacrifice. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom payment for many. And he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that by his wounds we may be healed. And though Christ was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. This is our God, who laid down his life for his sheep and earned with his broken flesh the name Lamb who was slain. But this is also our God, who because he ascended to the earth as a man and lived a perfect life of obedience and was pierced on the cross for our rebellion, the Father has also exalted him, and he has earned with his risen flesh the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I call on the one who comes here today as an enemy of God, to follow Christ's example, to submit your life to the will of God, to denounce the pursuits of this world, and to trust in the work of Christ to give you a right standing before God, and to receive the promises that come with this life of sacrifice, that you will be washed clean from your wrongdoing, and as with Christ, you too will be raised to a new life. And you will receive a share in his eternal kingdom where all the sufferings of the flesh will be done away with. Today, will you take up your cross and follow after Christ? Will you confess him to be the king of your life? Will you be baptized for the forgiveness of your disobedience? And will you join this body of believers who are still suffering on this earth? Will we are suffering the denial of our earthly pleasures we are suffering the sacrifice of our own interest, and we are suffering the persecution from those that are on the outside, but we are suffering with an eternal purpose. Will you all stand 
and join together with us as we give praise to the one who has earned the title, Lord our God. Shall pierce the 